You are listening to Mountain Bike Radio. Hello and welcome to episode four of the Trailcast on Mountain Bike Radio Network. I'm your host, Drew Sanford, and today I'll be continuing a series on how to get started building trail, as well as answer some questions from a listener about how to overcome obstacles to improving existing trails. But first, if you want to sponsor Trailcast, shoot me an email, trailcast at mountainbikeradio.com. If you want to support Mountain Bike Radio, head over to the website at mountainbikeradio.com and look at becoming a member, or hit the shop up over there and pick up something for yourself or someone else. You're all uh, getting a quick turnaround on episodes here to some extent because of the weather here. It's been pretty craptastic and there's been no trail building going on in the snow and the ice and the rain and flooding and everything else we've had in middle tennessee so i've spent the time that i've had here in the house policing my children who've had an entire like almost two weeks now off of school uh, to get together another episode for you so in episode three we started a series on how to get started building trail remember this isn't an in-detail guide on how to deal with building trail in every condition it's a broad overview of the way you should go about building a trail and the processes and procedures that need to take place to ensure that the right things are being done to develop long-lasting land manager relationships and fun long-lasting trails. So last time I stopped at figuring out who owned or managed the property in question and getting permission. That conversation is only going to take you so far. In most cases, particularly if you don't have the, uh, if you're working with like a park manager, um, they're going to want you to get a written proposal because they're not going to have the final decision there on on what the what's going to happen in the park. And even if they do, they need to be able to explain the choice that they've made to allow the trail to be built. So most of the time, those reasons are something you're going to need to be able to explain in a clear and professional manner. Uh, typically in a written proposal. So today I'm going to go over some of the details on on what you need to to have in that proposal because the proposal is is going to be presented to people who don't know you and you need to start with some basics. The first thing everyone will want to know is who you are and who is your club and why, if anybody, is going to be allowed to build trails on this land should it be you. Why are you qualified to do it? Remember, this isn't just about you. It's about your club, your group, your team, you know, the people I discussed in the last episode. And the harsh reality of the situation is if you're approaching this project solo, it's likely to get shot down simply because it stands less chance of being completed if it's taken than if it was taken on by an organized group. So the first thing you need to do is to convince whoever is reading the proposal that it's even worth reading. Once you've done that, there are several critical questions that your proposal needs to answer. Uh, First, who will benefit from the trail? Remember, if you're working in a park, or most other places for that manager with a land manager, who will be uh, trying to utilize his his resources, uh, the largest resources he has is going to be the land, to provide the greatest benefit to the greatest number of people without causing damage to that resource. That's the bottom line. That's what they're there for. That's why the parks are there. Uh, ultimately, they're, they're there for uh, the enjoyment of the general public. 
And so the larger group of potential users your trail has, the more likely it is to get a go-ahead. And that means that you likely want to start from the ground up thinking about the trail not just as a mountain bike trail, but as a hiking trail and an equestrian trail as well. Some parks may already have a no equestrian policy. Um, you may have a situation where a land manager actually wants a, a, a mountain bike only trail developed because of user conflict somewhere else. Uh, whatever whatever that, that happens to be, regardless of, of what language is being used there uh, when you actually build that trail, get used to talking about the trails you build when you're discussing them with people as multi-use trails, not as mountain bike trails. And the important thing about multi-use trails is that the term is inclusive rather than exclusive. It's uh, more positive than calling it a mountain bike trail or a hiking trail and less potentially confusing than calling it single track. Some people don't know what single track is. Uh, another important aspect of this is an economic one. Will people come to the trails from far enough away once they've, uh, you know, they spent time at the trails? Will they stop locally for food or, you know, they're going to be coming from close enough that, you know, they can just go home and eat? Um, if the trails are in town, how many people will reap potential health benefits from these trails by having a recreational resource close by? Uh, this is not the place to limit your dreams. This is a place to to have visions of grandeur. Remember, you're selling a project at this point. The next question is, who will build the trail? Um, this is a place to be specific and not to make promises that you can't deliver on. Uh, in, in short, there are a lot of options, but the reality is, with all of this talk, if nobody ever puts tools in the dirt and builds the trail, it means nothing. But it's a lot of work. Will members of your mountain bike club do it? other trail users, um, reach out to hiking groups in your area. Maybe there's enough money floating around somewhere to hire professional builders. Lucky you. Either way, the people who get to decide whether or not the trail gets to be built needs to know that there's a plan and an understanding about who's actually going to do the work. Likewise, managing a trail after it's built can be a huge project, especially if it's a large trail system. Odds are your local parks department or any other land management organization isn't going to have the time, budget, or human resources to add managing a trail system to their list of responsibilities. Be clear about what management tasks your club or other organizations are willing to undertake. Don't volunteer people without their agreement. Remember, part of managing the trail is ensuring responsible use, so don't overlook that. Rangers or park employees may have time to ride by the trailhead, but they can't patrol the trail, and the users who prove that they can self-regulate are more likely to be allowed to undertake further projects in the future. Anyone who's contemplating agreeing to allow you to build a trail is going to want to be able to let everybody else know when they can expect the trail to be open. So they need to know how long it's going to take you to build it. You need to provide a realistic timeline. Most people are familiar, at least in passing, with the Scotty factor, whereby the engineer on the Starship Enterprise multiplied his repair time estimates by a factor of four. While that might be overkill, it might be helpful to at least double the amount of time you think it might take, especially if it's your first try. As many times as I try to put this into perspective for people, it seems to never stick until they've experienced it themselves. It isn't simply that building trail can end up requiring significantly more engineering than you expected. It's how much trail you can actually build in a day. Remember, 
this is an average number. In easy conditions, these numbers can go up, but in difficult conditions, they can go down. But on average, an experienced trail builder building a trail with hand tools can bench cut and finish a whopping 10 feet of trail per hour, a total of 80 feet in an eight-hour workday. And I'd be willing to bet that the average mountain biker going out to build trail can't even begin to build trail for eight hours. It's hard work. It's a whole lot harder work than most people are used to. And personally, depending on where I'm building, I've built upwards of 200 feet of trail a day. I've also built as little as 10 feet in a day. Conditions really can't affect productivity that much. Remember that building a trail isn't just digging. It takes time to lay out the corridor, clear the corridor, prepare it for the actual building of the trail. There's a lot going on there. So just keep all that in mind, because when people start thinking about project completion dates, they want to know what it's going to cost, too. Remember, just because you or your group or club or whoever is willing to build the trail, not everything is paid for. You might still need signage. Uh, you may need to have a new parking area. Some considera consideration may need to be made for restrooms or other trailhead facilities. Don't assume that you can find someone to cover these costs once the project is underway or near completion. Get commitments ahead of time. Your proposal its always going to have to include a map. The map must be good enough to withstand qu being questioned on multiple levels. It should be plotted out uh, on a topographical map. You should show property lines, and it's also helpful if there's a 50-foot inset line from the property lines that the trails don't cross, and that gives a, a measure of privacy to the uh, neighboring landowners and a buffer to ensure that you don't cross those property lines. It's very likely you'll need to scout the land prior to actually making the map. Don't forget to get permission for the scouting as well. The land manager may want to walk with you. He may even suggest points of interest. If they don't, be sure to ask about points of interest, protected species, or sites of archaeological interest. And remember, just because you draw this map out doesn't mean you're committed to its exact design. But if you change it somewhere along the way, you'll want to approve it with the land manager and have a compelling reason for changing something that's been approved. Don't forget to include the lengths of the proposed trail routes. One of the greatest obstacles to getting approval to build a trail on public land is opposition from neighboring landowners. They're often concerned about trail users straying from trails and wandering onto their property. The buffer zone mentioned in the map will go some way towards showing neighboring landowners that you'll take steps to keep that from happening, but be sure that you, you have a list of steps that you can take to ensure that, that your process there is going to be effective. For instance, one trail system I worked on was on a piece of land that had been subdivided into several large tracts, and the county bought one of those tracts, and others were sold privately. And the land was wooded, but it had been previously logged, and the old log Logging roads were still pretty easy to find, and cross property lines where it had been subdivided pretty frequently. So, one of the steps in building the trail on the property was to close up or conceal or generally just make the, them completely impassable, these old logging roads, anywhere where a trail crossed them or was close to one. Put it in the plan. It provides a level of comfort to, to the, the surrounding property owners. Uh, speaking of dealing with trail users, how do you plan to deal with parking and trash? Are there existing parking lots that have enough space to allow parking for trail users? Will you need a new parking lot? Will uh, you have dumpsters or trash cans, or will it be a pack-in, pack-out park? 
Who's going to pick up the trash that gets left laying around regardless of what plan you use? There's always going to be somebody who's going to leave their cup out there next to the trail. Coffee cup, their water bottle, their whatever. Um, will the general public have any input during the planning process for the trail? It doesn't matter if you use community meetings, if you stand in the park with clipboards and take surveys from people who use the park, or any other method, but you should always have a period during which you can accept input from the public at large on the project. Doing so will help ensure that no one can later come in and say, hey, there was no community input on this project, which can potentially stonewall the whole process. Um, if officials want to back up and go, okay, yeah, you're right. There was there nothing happened here. Um, do you want to do you want to go over this now? You know, and that that can can back your project up. It can stall things. Take care of it ahead of time, and uh, no one will have to think of it for you. So, uh, it seems like there's a great deal of time and information um, spent on this very small step in the process. But in reality, the proposal and approval process is often the most difficult step for people who aren't familiar with this process already. And even at that, I sense questions coming from podcast land. So I want to clear a couple of things up real quick. The first question I hear, and I hear it over and over and over, is how long would this take if I had a machine? This hand building thing sounds tougher than I thought it might be. And the answer is, don't even think about it. What? No, seriously. You want to think about it? Okay, here you go. The first thing you need to know is that a mini excavator is going to cost you about $30,000 to go out and buy. Sure, you can rent one, but that gets expensive too, and it's not a magic bullet by any means. A skilled operator with an excavator can go 300 to 500 feet in a day, and at that point, it's not a done job. Um, you still have to go back and clean up behind the machine. And as I said, a skilled operator, just because a guy in your club runs an excavator for a construction company, buries pipeline for a living or whatever, it doesn't qualify him to build trail on an excavator. So if you have the budget to use a machine, do yourself a favor, contact a professional trail builder and pay them to come out for at least two days with the understanding that they will be instructing you on how to use the machine properly. Otherwise, all you'll accomplish with a machine is making a bigger mess than you could ever make with hand tools a whole lot faster than you ever dreamed you could. You've been warned. Next is this map thing. I see more questions about how to make maps on existing trails, and honestly, it's much easier than making maps of trails that don't exist. <laughs> I'll cover a lot of the technique on imagining lines for trails that people will want to use later, but the question of how to get them on a map that looks good enough to include in a proposal is challenging in and of itself. There are several options. You can use Google Maps to get some imagery and some drawing program to sketch the trails onto that. That's that's okay. You can get a USGS topo map and do the same thing with it, but I really consider these half measures. If you want a really good map, and trust me, you do because it lends credibility to your proposal, get a good GIS program, that's a geographic information system, learn how to use it. 
I know GIS software can cost thousands of dollars, but there's a free open source GIS program called QGIS. It runs on Linux, Mac, and Windows, so that's got pretty much everybody covered. Um, it doesn't come with base maps you can use to start your project, but I can help you with that too if you're lucky. There's a good chance that your city or county has a GIS system, and if they do, there's a good chance that you can get them to give you for free a section of map that includes the property you'll be working on, the surrounding properties with property lines, topography, maybe even aerial photography for the area in question. And if you're super, super lucky, they might even have LIDAR data, which is super high resolution topographic imagery. Um, it's very expensive, so don't get down if they won't let you have that for free. It's super nice, but it's not critical. After that, you need a good GPS unit. I recommend a handheld dedicated GPS unit, not your phone, not your like unit off of your bike or whatever. Go get a good handheld GPS unit. Okay. Um, you're going to, you're going to have to go out and buy one. Make sure you get one that you can load a custom map onto. It's important because once you have the proposal map done, you can load it back into the GIS and use it to our GPS and use it to assist in the layout process. But for now you use the GPS to make waypoints that mark points of interest on a property. When you scout it, um, you get things you want to, you know, run the trail to, uh, or places that you want the trail to stay away from. Like if there's an area where there's sensitive plant life or something of that sort, um, you can import these waypoints into the GIS software and pass the trail through them or avoid them as necessary. So that's uh, that's a wrap on the trail building series for this show. Uh, we'll pick that up next time. And uh, so now on to other matter matters. Hmm. In further evidence that more than two people listen to this podcast, which I credit to some sort of accident, Ken sent me an email with questions that seemed to be the sort of thing that regularly pop up in trail building communities and was looking to hear my thoughts on them. I, of course, decided that it would be beneficial to answer these questions on the air, as it were, instead of by email. So, Ken, here you go. Ken's first question was, most of our local trails are on city or forest service property. Both entities have a fairly strong no new trails policy because of exactly what you've said. They just don't have the manpower to maintain them. So we have had success in focusing on conservation-driven projects. We identify a 300 to 500-foot section of rutted fall line trail that is in need of work, develop a reroute project that just happens to stretch the section of trail to 1,500 or even 3,000 feet. Not a bad way to improve and stretch the trails that we have. So the first thing I have to say is congratulations. There was never a more legitimate reason to extend the length of an existing trail than rerouting for sustainability. Not only have you made the land manager happy by reducing the amount or by reducing the amount of trail that they have on their property that is deteriorating, but you've done so without them having to dedicate time, effort or money to it. Believe it or not, that's the key to cracking the no new trails policy. There will come a point when you can bring them a proposal such as the one I've just finished talking about, and through that, help them understand that you can build a new section of trail, not just a reroute, that won't cost them any resources, won't create a maintenance problem for them later, and, you know, it's it's basically, at that point, it's, it's, it's a free resource for them. 
This uh, this isn't something that will happen overnight, but it will happen simply because you've succeeded uh, in executing other projects. Usually, breaking this barrier with a proposal is a result of a long-standing relationship with the land manager based on trust and mutual respect. If you want to put new trails in, keep on doing a top-notch job of what you're already doing and build that relationship. Ken followed that up with uh, with this question. He said, one of our hurdles is getting the land managers to allow more technical trail features. Other than some EMBA documents, do you have any suggestions for ways to encourage the land managers to allow A lines and B lines on the trails? We have a few trails that have natural rock outcroppings and drops immediately adjacent to existing trail. The easy addition to the system, but... Each time someone clears the brush or fallen branches to start riding, then the logs and brush gets placed back on to block access. So, Ken, the biggest problem that I've run into with land managers regarding technical trail features has been liability. And in order to get past this, you have to have a comprehensive risk management program in place. This includes rating the trails for difficulty, signage indicating difficulty, qualifiers for the trail, where, for instance, there's a low penalty obstacle that is representative of the challenges that riders will face on the trail, which they have to negotiate in order to access the trail. Um, In the case of beelines, they typically want it to be well marked. And the one problem that I've run into in the past is land managers that don't want all of the signs and everything on the property uh, to mark some of these things. It tends to interfere with the natural look and feel of the trails. And if the land managers don't want the signs and risk can't be managed in any other way, sometimes you just have to take what you can get and live with it. This means you accept the trails without the beelines and be glad you have the trails. I would impress upon the riding community the importance of not reopening these lines unless you actually get approval from the land manager. I know that one is tough to swallow sometimes. I'm a guy, I build beelines on like all of my trails. There are places where um, you can ride through and anybody can ride through a section. And there's another place where, um, you know, if I'm, if I'm out riding with my son, I want a little technical line off to the side that, that looks crazy to him and he can watch me ride it. And when he goes, you know what, I've seen you do that a couple of times and I've done some other things that look a little bit like that. And maybe that not quite that gnarly or whatever, but Hey, can I try that? I think I figured out how to do that. And I'm like, go for it. Knock yourself out. I'm right here. Um, and and that's that's how that's how I get him to step up. Basically, is is to let him see stuff like that. So, beelines are a great thing, but you you got to respect the land manager in in this instance. If they don't want them, and you can't talk them into it, um, live with the fact that you've got trail there. So finally, Ken had one more question about how they might connect some of the out and back trails that they have to make loops. He said, uh, we have a few long trails that are out and back routes that dead end at wilderness boundaries or just dead end. We would like to tie the ends of these trails together uh, across the existing trails to create loops that are larger than existing smaller loops in our system. Can you think of any documents that we could use to support our goal to extend and connect those loose ends? The biggest argument I can think of is to reduce traffic and conflict on a more popular route by giving an alternate 
alternate return route on what's currently a little used trail. So Ken, this is the nitty gritty as far as I'm concerned. Obviously the first thing is that connecting these out and back trails isn't going to be a straightforward process. Obviously it's all going to have to be planned out, routed in a way that gives these connections the requisite sustainability. And then in terms of supporting this process as a proposal to the land manager, that's a different story. And there's no one document source that does it all. You have to be careful with the notion that user conflict needs to be reduced. If, uh, if the, their land manager gets stuck on the idea that uh, no new trails can be built there, and then you get it in his head, this notion that there's existing user conflict on the trail, the land manager could uh, take it into his head to deal with that in terms that, that leave a lot of people unhappy. Rather, paint the whole thing as a benefit without creating negatives. The key here is, if you provide a longer trail, you can bring in more users. Presumably, more users is always a good thing for a land manager, especially if they're using a resource that isn't costing the land manager anything, such as trails maintained by volunteers. If you have a loop, you can effectively double the traffic on the loop without increasing the stress that the traffic puts on the tread of what was once an out-and-back trail. So the additional traffic will not cause additional erosion. So the loop also, the, the loop configuration there will inherently produce less user conflict than an out-and-back trail, and it makes any potential user conflict easier to manage through directional recommendations. For instance, you send cyclists and hikers in opposite directions so that they can always see each other coming. People get uh, a little bit sensitive about directional trails. Hey, I like to ride that trail, you know, the opposite direction of what you're saying. Um, the answer to that is a sign at the trailhead that says, you know, cyclists go this way three days a week and that way four days a week. And uh, hikers always go the opposite direction. So maybe a little bit more complex, but then everybody can ride the trail in their favorite direction, too. So uh, that's, that's, an, you know, one possibility for that. Um, you, you allow increased traffic that way. And here's the key. You do it without creating any user conflict. And remember to refer back to the proposal points to help with things like this, to show the overall benefits, uh, the use those benefits to nip any notion of negativity in the bud. So you can like, such as, uh, saying it can be done without creating user conflict rather than saying it will reduce user conflict, implying that that uh, it will negate negative circumstances rather than implying that negative circumstances already exist. Now, I realize a lot of this advice pertains to dealing with uh, proposals and, and land managers. It always sounds like PR and spin doctoring, and I don't want anyone to get the wrong idea about what ad advocacy entails, but the reality is that as an advocate, you're always trying to shed the best light on trails, the potential for trails, the users. You have to get past the negative ideas that come with the idea idea of mountain bikers, uh, the reputation, whether it's been earned in your area or not, you have to ensure that these people see the best in you and your group when they look at you, because that's the only way that you'll ever change their mind uh, if they have a negative idea of who mountain bikers are and what they do. So with that, uh, with that said, I need to do a little bit of cleanup from episode three. Um, if some of you were sharp-eyed and actually read the show notes, uh, which i you know, maybe you do, maybe you don't. Um, I was going to teach y'all how to be Roman 
and I completely forgot, but this is a good time to do it because I see a lot of blanket statements covering like what trail conditions you should and shouldn't ride trails and stuff like that. Um, and there are places where uh, the wetter trails are, the better they are. Uh, like if they're sand, sand trails are great when they're wet. Um, and then there are other places where trails just never get wet. Uh, in this area, I deal with a lot of military folk that come from uh, different parts of the country. They aren't used to hearing some of our guidelines, like don't ride muddy trails. These guys have no idea what freeze-thaw conditions mean. So rather than repeat things that have been said over and over again until everyone is fed up of hearing them, I'm going to say this about trails. When in Rome, do as the Romans do. And that's how to be Roman, Right. Um, I'm going to start off by making a gross assumption that trail builders know more about their local soil types than anybody else. And eventually in the trail building process, we'll get to why that is. Okay. But therefore more about the conditions that are acceptable or not acceptable for riding trails in that area. For instance, in middle Tennessee, we have some rocky clay, uh, and the freeze thaw conditions. This stuff just turns into soup. Riding the trails will leave ruts in them. The ruts hold water. Uh, best case scenario, you get a, a mud hole in the trail and it gets widened out with people trying to ride around it, which you shouldn't do. Mud hole in the trail. People ride through the mud hole. Don't make the trail wider. If it needs to be fixed, fix it. Don't make the trail wider. That's where the uh, keep single track single thing comes in. So um, that's something that can be fixed. If it's a mud hole, fix it. Don't ride around it. Um, so uh, worst case scenario, these ruts in the trail will give water a chance to run down a hill uh, instead of running off the trail. Uh, so it negates that carefully crafted outslope of the trail that's designed to move water off the trail. And it allows the erosion process to get a foothold on the trail. That means more work for the people maintaining the pay trail, possibly a bad rap with a land manager. And depending on uh, how actively they monitor the conditions, you know, that they can, um, I've seen them close trails for, for things like that. You know, what's going on here. But, um, Middle Tennessee is going to be very, very bad for the next probably two weeks. But my point really is this. When you're mountain biking somewhere or thinking about it, be aware of the trail conditions. Be aware of what the locals say about whether or not the trails are rideable or should be ridden and act accordingly. In other words, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. What it really boils down to is respect. Respect for the people who build and maintain the trails, many of whom spend hours building or making trails better when they could be out riding or spending time with their families or friends. Respect for the land managers who allow the trails to be built where they are in the first place and respect for the future of the sport because you disrespect the trails, you disrespect the land managers, you're going to lose access to all of it. Finally, we have a few work days coming up. As a reminder, Sorba Mid-10 has a work day at Bells Bend Park on Saturday, March 14th at 9 a.m. I also received an email from Chewy in Fairfax, California. He wants everybody to know uh, in that area that the Friends of Tamarancho, I think I've said that right, and Access for Bikes have work days at Tamarancho on Saturdays at 10 a.m. They meet up at the Ranger Station at the end of Iron Springs Road. Those folks are putting in a new downhill flow trail up there. It sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. 
Sounds like part of the uh, target there is to make a directional loop from that and another existing trail there to address some traffic issues. So stop in and give those guys a hand. Uh, if you want some more information on that project, you can check them out on Facebook. Just search for Friends of Tamarancho. That's T-A-M-A-R-A-N-C-H-O. If you have uh, comments or questions, head over to Facebook. Check out the Trailcast page at facebook.com slash trailcastpodcast. And on that note, you can also follow along on what I'm doing on Twitter by following at Catharius. That's C-O-T-H-A-R-Y-U-S. And on Instagram using the same name, Catharius. Again, I want to thank Ben at Mountain Bike Radio for giving me a forum for this podcast. Head over to mountainbikeradio.com and support them. Check out some of the other shows there. Remember, you can get to them through Stitcher, or download the Mountain Bike Radio app from the iTunes Store or Google Play Store, or you can just grab the podcast through iTunes. Uh, head over there, rate any of that stuff. Uh, you know, if you give it a give it a good rating there, it'll make it easy for other people to find the uh, the mountain bike radio show, a podcast, this show, everything else. So, um, yeah, give the uh, give the other shows a listen to there. Uh, for right now, this is uh, episode four of Trailcast, and this is the end. Thanks for listening, and remember, you don't need mountains to mountain bike, but you do need trails. Thank you.